You've entered the Rock is Lit Vault. Welcome to the Rock is Lit Vault, where you can find outtakes from the regular episodes and extended episodes, as well as special features, behind-the-scenes peaks, and breaking news. Join me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, for each enthralling episode, then migrate to the vault for Rock is Lit Deep Cuts. Episode 10 of Rock is Lit features Jennifer Halp's novel, Come As You Are, a story set against the backdrop of the Seattle grunge scene of the early 1990s. Nabil Ayers, author of the memoir My Life in the Sunshine and co-founder of Seattle's iconic record store Sonic Boom, shares his memories of that pivotal moment in music history in the full episode. Here are two outtakes from my interview with Nabil, in which he talks about his new memoir about his efforts to connect with his father, the funk, soul, and jazz legend Roy Ayers, and Nabil's experience meeting Joan Jett when his band opened up for her back in the day. Check out other bonus material from Episode 10 in the Rock is Lip Vault, including my full, uncut interview with Charles R. Cross about Kurt Cobain, and outtakes from my interview with Jennifer Halp about her novel, Come As You Are. My life, my life, my life, my life in the sunshine. Everybody loves the sunshine. Sunshine. Everybody loves the sunshine. Talk a bit about my life in the sunshine and your background that inspired it, because your upbringing was, for lack of a better term, unorthodox. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, I was born, so my mother, backtrack to her, my mother, who I'm still close with, who lives in Brooklyn, who I'm going to see tonight, I think. She, when she was 20, she lived in New York City. She was already a retired ballet dancer, kind of didn't know what she was doing with her life and decided that she wanted to be a young single mother. She didn't have a great childhood, wanted to sort of devote her life to giving someone else a great childhood. And so she wasn't, I wouldn't say she was like on the search for somebody, but she was out with my uncle, my father figure, essentially, her younger brother, who's a jazz musician, Alan Braufman, and they were at a jazz club and they ran into Roy Ayers, who my uncle knew just a little bit. Roy is a pretty famous vibraphonist, um, singer, songwriter. And my mother, the way she tells it is she immediately just said, this is the person I'm going to have a child with. And that's Mm. not to say this is the person I want to marry or be with, but she just Mm -hmm. wanted his child. And so they dated at best a few times. And she asked him, she said, I want to have your child. You don't have to be around. And he said, okay. And so I've always, <laughs> I've always known that story. So it's an interesting, it's a unique set of circumstances because they weren't divorced. They were never together. He never left us. He was never supposed right. to be there. So, so I grew up knowing that and knowing his music and knowing that my father was famous, but he was no part of my life. We weren't in contact. And it wasn't in a negative way because I never knew him and my mother never said anything negative. It was never like, oh, you're deadbeat dad. It was the opposite. It was like, he was this incredible charismatic person who brought you into the world. So I always sort of saw him in this positive light. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book is largely based on that. And I mean, it goes into lots of other things. But eventually, once I was in my 30s, I decided I wanted to finally kind of try to reach him before, you know, he was old. He's, he's, he's still around. He's 81 now. But um, that was when I decided it's time to at least learn some things about my family and his side of the family and my medical history. And we got together and um, yeah. got along really well. But then it became kind of harder to get in touch with him. And so I kind of went on this search for family on his side, did 23andMe, did a bunch of research and just found this treasure trove of information that is still evolving. It's crazy. 
when you went to your mom as an adult and said you were interested in making contact with him, her response was pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, she said, and I quote, be careful. Even if you do get a hold of him, he's so unreliable. Even if you make plans with him, he won't come. Are you sure you want to do this? And you went forward with it. And then when you did meet him, he told you he was proud of you. And your reaction to that was kind of complicated. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because we we were getting along really well. It wasn't at all. Mm -hmm. It was a very positive, happy, light meeting, really connected in a lot of ways. I saw myself in him, the way he laughed, his mannerisms. It was incredible. But when he said he was proud of me, I just thought, I knew at that moment, I thought, hmm, I'm going to have to think about this to really process it. That feels, I mean, that feels like a lot. And what I thought about was that that's a weird thing to say because he didn't have anything to do with my life except for, of course, the biggest thing. But, but you know, I saw it as sort of narcissistic. I thought I, I saw it as like, well, now that I've met you and it seems like you're, you've turned out okay, I can say, hey, I did a good job. That's how I took it. And I don't think that's what he meant, but that's, you know, I was in a position to overthink things and yeah. that's what I did. But I talked to my uncle later that day, the person who sort of introduced him to my to my mother and uh and he said you know he was just trying to give you a compliment which was <laughs> a nice mm-hmm, way to bring it back mm-hmm. down to earth i think it's interesting that your half siblings your, your biological father's other children are not mm-hmm. musicians i mean you're the only one right right yeah that is weird right did he ever talk to you about his music or music in general not too much i mean we just had this one lunch which was probably an hour and a half or two hours so i was really more focused on tell me medical history tell me about my grandparents tell me about your childhood like I was taking notes I really like sort of interviewed him it's interesting that his parents were musicians too. right right so you have this it's in your DNA yeah there's it's a lot no, of music no, around right mm-hmm. no wonder that you became a musician yeah what do you want readers to take away from your memoir I mean what what do you want them to come away thinking of Roy Ayers uh, well I, it's almost two different questions for Roy I think it's certainly I think it's a positive book about him. I mean, there's certainly some some down moments and some moments when I'm upset and not happy with him. But but in the end, I'm really, really happy for everything he's given me. And I think I got a lot from him, even though he wasn't a presence. Actually, he was a presence in a sort of bigger picture way. Uh, and I'm really happy about that. So I think it's very positive about my father. And I think the bigger takeaway is just about life and family and all these incredible connections and that I have now I'm in touch with people who I'm definitely related to, who I talk with all the time and email with. I'm in touch with people I'm definitely not related to, who I consider family <laughs> and talk to all the time. Yeah. And I'm in touch with some people who I'm actually not sure and it doesn't matter. And that's really the thing. It's sort of this chosen family thing, which means, sure, Roy is my father, but there are people I'm much closer to that I've met because of him. And so you can kind of choose your own family. Yeah. Th- and that was something that I found really interesting in, in that you were exploring what it means to be a family. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many of us who have complex relationships with our blood relatives. Yeah, and yeah. the people that you choose to be in your life, you, you often feel closer to. And yeah, that was, that was a great part of the book. Thank you.
This is Nabil Ayers, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. You were also playing in bands in Seattle at mm-hmm. the height of the grunge craze. Would you describe the music you were making then as grunge? No, I was. In, I would say I was in a rock band. I was in this okay. band called The Lemons that was a bit more like Ramones, three-minute, really simple riffs. People called it punk rock. I don't think it was punk, but it was definitely like we played with like Joan Jett, who I also consider like rock. I was going to ask you about that because you opened for her in 1996. Yeah. You got to tell me about that. It was so fun. We got two shows opening for Joan Jett. We were all really big fans of hers. All of us had I Love Rock and Roll when we were kids. And we were all at the time, and I guess, 23, 24. And, uh, and the shows are in Santa Cruz and San Francisco. And the first night in Santa Cruz, you know, we were really nervous, like, oh, we're going to get to hang out with Joan Jett. And her manager was there. And I think we had the same booking agent and he'd kind of done her a favor by letting us open the shows, which happens. And so we were talking to him and he was kind of giving us like, you know, don't play for too long. You want to play for 20 minutes. You want to leave them wanting more, like telling us things like that, which is really <laughs> funny, but probably true. And uh, and she was like there, but not with us. And and he'd be like, let me introduce you. Hey, Joni. But she would kind of ignore him. And and it would just and she would walk right by us, but not say anything. It was this really awkward kind of thing where we were like, "Wow, but, but when do we get to meet her?" But we don't want to bother her. And then the next night in San Francisco, we were friends with the women in the band Seven Year Bitch, who are from Seattle, and they were friends with Joan, and they happened to be in town, so they came to the show early, and we were all just hanging out. And I think that was like what broke the wall down. Joan saw that. Oh, I guess if we were friends with Seven Year Bitch, we were okay. So she talked to us a little. We didn't have like a long conversation, but she like said a few words. But the best part was during our set, I looked over and we could see her at the side of the stage, like, you know, watching, which was pretty intense. Yeah. She was my first concert. Oh, wow. Yeah. And my dad was um, vice chancellor of student affairs at East Carolina University. And mm-hmm. he booked Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And this would have been... 81, 82, whenever that tour was going on, I was, I was young, but it was my first concert. And he took me backstage to meet her afterward. Mm. And she signed my ticket, which has been stolen. I don't have it anymore. But yeah, that was, (laughs) that was very cool. Yeah. I always saw her open for people when I was in high school in Salt Lake City. I remember she opened for Loverboy. (laughs) I think maybe she opened for Robert Plant once. Really? Like 80s concerts. Yeah. But she was always the opening band, which is why I remember when her manager were sort of telling us how to act as an opening band. I was like, well, he, I mean, he would know that she spent a lot of time doing that. Thanks for hanging out in the Rock is Lit vault. Check out more Rock is Lit episodes and be on the lookout for more bonus material here in the vault. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit!